John. Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. So as you get there, let me ask you to think through one question. It's one of those questions that has many layers to this question. So uh, this is the question. Do you think that you are enough? Do you think that you are enough? Do you feel like you're enough? Or another way to put it, do you think your life is happy enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, thin enough, good enough? Think about that. David Zoll, uh, he wrote a book, and he explores this topic of enoughness in his book called Seculosity. He says this, listen carefully, and you'll hear the word enough everywhere especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plagues, plague our moment to such tragic proportions. I think he's right. I think, I think he is right. We all are running on the treadmill of enoughness. And the Christian word for this is righteousness, right? And, and we often call the search for enoughness misplaced worship or idolatry. But think about, it, about this. Why can't you stop working? Why are you overworking? Or, or what makes you drive so hard for that A? Probably because you equate busyness with worth. You feel like you're enough when you overwork, or at least that's what I do. Whenever I overwork, I feel I'm worthy. You feel enough when you get that A just for that second. Why do you eat what you eat? Because that's what you think will make you thin enough and healthy enough, and, and, and being thin or fit or healthy makes you feel like you're enough. Or if someone makes a critical comment about what you eat, what happens? The world falls apart. And now, now you're not good enough. Why do you parent the way you parent? Can I critique your parenting? If I critique your parenting, what will happen? Will your world shatter and fall apart? Would you... Will that make you defensive because you'll feel not good enough all, all of a sudden? You see, it's everywhere. Just pick a category. I just picked a couple categories of people that we have in our church, but, but that extends to so many other areas. Just pick a category, and you will notice that enough is in it. We set up, set up a standard of living for ourselves that brings us a sense of enoughness. And the reason I'm talking about this is because we are continuing our study in the book of John, and John shares us a story, shares a story with us, and the story exposes a system that is not enough, a system that people thought was enough, a system people thought made them enough. But what Jesus does is he literally flips that over to show that he is enough. It's not that our actions that make us enough, but it's his action that does. So that's what we're going to be exploring today, that all our actions are not going to be enough, no matter how hard we try, but it's his action. He is enough. So let's dive in. Chapter 2, verse 13. 
John says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. So, let's pause. Uh, Two things are at play here that we need to look a little bit closer. First, there's this holiday called the Passover. We need to understand what what was going on during this holiday and what it means for our story. And then second is the temple. The temple comes up over and over in our text, a place that has a ton of meaning behind it and, and, and sometimes that we sometimes miss. So first, the Passover. The Passover, in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist alludes to the Passover when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he was alluding to it. Now the Lamb of God was the Passover reference, and now a chapter later, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So it's a holiday that the Jews celebrated every year to remind them of a time when God's judgment passed over them, right? So it's a, it's a very, it's kind of play on words a little bit there. But histo- historians say that about 50 to 100,000 people, right? So it's a big number, especially think this is 2,000 years ago, 50 to 100,000 people would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday. The origin of the holiday goes back to a time in Exodus when God was going to free his people from slavery to the Egyptians. The Egyptians had so far, uh, they refused to free his people. So God told his people to, to choose a lamb, kill it, wipe its blood on the doorpost of their homes. And here's why. After sending several plagues that didn't change Pharaoh's heart or mind, God was going to send one final plague, one that overshadows every plague so far, death to the every firstborn and every house in Egypt, unless the doorpost of the house was marked by the blood of the lamb. So death missed. It passed over God's people because they were marked by the blood of the lamb. And the Egyptians let God's people go after that plague. So each year, God's people would remember this story and remember their great deliverance. And, and so it was a really big deal for them, and they would celebrate. And then they would sacrifice a lamb to remember the lamb died instead of us. Right? Like their kids were supposed to die, but they didn't because they listened and they put the blood around the doorpost. But the lamb was not the only animal that was sacrificed. In verse 14 of chapter 2, we see oxen and sheep and pigeons. And in the next verse, we see doves as well. So the sacrificial system existed because the death of an animal was necessary because of the sin of the people. Blood must be shed for sin to be forgiven. So Hebrews 9.22 says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So part of the sacrificial system was that you brought a sacrifice for your sins. So for you to make yourself right or uh, or make yourself enough, an animal would die instead of you for your sins. So the Passover was a day that everyone not only remembered the historical deliverance in Exodus, but also brought a sacrifice to atone for their sins, a sort of continuing deliverance. And so the story that we're about to walk through is taking place during the busiest time of the year, right? There's a lot of people there. Everybody's making their way to Jerusalem to remember this great deliverance that happened back in the day. Now, the story also takes place in the temple, 
That's the second thing, right? The temple. So if you would ask, if you ask a Jewish person in the first century, where is God? He would say very quickly, in the temple. In the temple. It was the biggest building that you would see in Jerusalem. The temple was designed originally by King David and was built by King Solomon. It was a symbol that reflected the creation story and pointing to the fact that all of creation was intended to be God's temple. So if you compare this Genesis 1 and 2 to the temple, there's a lot of similarities here. So in Genesis 1, God took chaos and disorder and ordered it um, day by day. God spoke, and it was so, for six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. Similarly, the tabernacle and the temple were built through six speeches from God. God spoke six times, and his dwelling place with his people was made. The tabernacle and the temple were built in accordance with his six speeches. And at the end of this, of this creating, the priest and king could rule and reign with God's presence. The inside of the temple had a very garden-like feel. Um, like if you took pictures of it, you would feel like they were trying to recreate the garden, very similar to Genesis 2. The priests and Levites were given a task to work and keep the temple. Uh, if you know the story of Genesis 1 and 2, you will know that that's exactly the task God gave Adam and Eve to work and keep the garden. So there are many, many similarities here between Genesis 1 and 2 and the temple, and the similarities between the temple and Genesis 1 and 2 don't stop because just as Adam and Eve wanted to rule and reign according to their own rules, and that's just a very kind way of saying they just rebelled against God, priests and Levites did the same. And both consequences were similar. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, and later the temple was destroyed, and the people were taken into exile. Right? So there's a lot of similarities that happened between Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and the temple. And 70 years later, after they come back from the exile, if you remember from the minor prophets when we study that, 70 years later, God's people return home and they start to rebuild the temple. The temple was a big deal for them. That's where God's presence was with them. And so, but whenever they start rebuilding, it was not as glorious as the pre previous one, but it still represented all the original intent. And this time around, sadly, the corruption only grew in the temple but the temple was still a place where the heaven and earth came together. God was there. And God, who created all things, has chosen to take up residence with his people. So people from far away, because of this reality, right? So people so far away, Jewish people or Gentile believers, would journey once a year to the temple. They wanted to be reminded that God is with them. Uh, they, they wanted to be reminded of all their promises that the prophets talked about. They would journey to the temple to hear those promises again from priests. Or they were laboring under a weight of their own sin. They would bring a sacrifice to the temple to atone for the past sins for that year. So to bring enoughness back to the story, they, they would come and sacrifice an animal so they could feel good enough before God again. And this was their reality, right? So we're studying more of a historical approach. This is their reality. This is something that they did every year. And I can imagine, I can imagine after making this trip 20 times, 
30 times, 40 times, bringing an animal with me would get old. Just get old. I have to bring an animal to sacrifice for my sins, but the journey would be tiring. Like, remember, this is not just you walking on a little path carrying a lamb to Jerusalem. There's thousands of people coming probably from your town, all making a way there. And, and sheep and goats and whatever animals are coming, they're not just like walking right, right by you like a dog would, right? Like, no, they're just running around. You're like, is that your sheep? Or is that you? My sheep has like a dark streak on it. Like, you don't even know. You have to, it's confusing a little bit, right? And you're walking. And then if you know anything about sheep, they poop a lot, so like this journey, so the people who walked in front of you, now you're walking more like Dance Dance Revolution through the path because, because there's so much poop everywhere. You guys are laughing, but this is their reality. It's true. And so the business-minded people, because just like we have business-minded people, they had business-minded people during that time, decided to help people out with this problem. And they decided they would raise lambs and other animals and they would sell them to the people who arrived, right? Simplify. Go, you know what? That journey is hard, so guess what? You can come to the temple, purchase an animal, and just bring that sacrifice. And they would place ridiculous high prices on these animals, but, but because the need was high, people would buy them regardless of the price. And the business was rolling. So instead of traveling for miles and miles with these animals, people would walk up, purchase an animal, bring that animal to the priest. The priest would sacrifice that animal on your behalf, and you call it good, right? Pretty painless way to make yourself enough. So Jesus is walking into the temple during the Passover, and it probably smelled pretty bad. Uh, and just to, to give you even a better picture of, of what it looked like, just picture, imagine a flea market with thousands of people. Just the transactions happen. People are everywhere. Animals are everywhere. Money is changing hands everywhere. There's this, like, there's no silence happening in that moment, right? Like, there's just this, this kind of, like, chatter going on. That's the context for us. Right? That's, this is what Jesus is entering into this story. And now let's look at the story. Jesus walks into the temple in Jerusalem, a place where God dwells with men. And what happens next? Verse 15. John tells us, And making a whip of cords, he, Jesus, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So, I can kind of, I can imagine that this has been a normal day uh, in the temple during the Passover, money being exchanged, animals being purchased, and all of this is because people really wanted to, at the heart level, probably just wanted to obey God and sacrificing for their sins. People really simply wanted to be good enough before God, right? And so that was part of their system that they were wa walking in and, and participating and he comes to Jesus, he walks in, looks around, and gets upset upon seeing this. Why? Well, verse 16 tells us, John says, And he told those who sold pigeons, Take those things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So, so picture this with me. Jesus walks into the temple. It's supposed to be a place where God and men meet. A place where you go before the God of the universe, 
a place where God's glory dwells. And sure, no one enters to the Holy of Holies except the high priest when he brought sacrifice before God, but God's glory should be in the whole temple. The temple was built to display God's glory, but instead of seeing God's glory, Jesus looks and sees a flea market. Probably stepping in poop. Instead of silent prayers, there are debates over the price of goats, yelling and screaming and horrible smells. And that's what their relationship with God has become. You see, Jesus is looking and he's seeing what their relationship with the the holy God has become. A transaction. I buy an animal. I give it to the priest. I'm good to go. My father's house is a house of trade. My father's house is a house of transaction. There's no relationship in this picture. There's no relationship. The worship of God is made a mockery. And Jesus' righteous anger is about to correct the misplaced worship. And the thing is, the thing is, it would be nearly impossible to apply a one-to-one correlation to our lives from this passage. But I do want to ask this one question, or this two-part question, um, in what areas of your life are you setting up a system of enoughness and you need Jesus to come and flip over tables? Just think about it. In what areas of your life are you setting up a system of enoughness and you need Jesus to come in and flip over the tables? In other words, where have you neglected God's holiness and straight up abused his grace? And I'm not getting you to think about your sin without hope. This passage is full of hope. The reality is this, that you will never be good enough. You won't, no matter how close you get or how much you achieve to that, that whatever you're looking for, whatever you're running after, you'll never arrive at enough. But here's the good news for us, Jesus is enough. Jesus, who symbolically replaces the purification laws right before this passage with his own blood for us, basically does the same thing here. He flips over tables. Even for one day now, the sacrificial system had to take a pause. We're talking about the busiest season in the temple, the most profitable too. Jesus causes a pause. And sure, the following day, everything was back to normal and business was rolling again. But this one day, Jesus halted the system that was in place. And eventually, he will become the sacrificial lamb himself. He will replace the sacrifice of animals in the temple with his own life. And Jesus doesn't hold back the truth of this reality, right? Look look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, so this is going down, tables are being flipped, there's a chaos. So, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, said, then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So he doesn't hold back this thing. The Jews' questions for Jesus are very natural. I think these are the questions that if we were part of that story, would be asking the same questions. Jesus just stopped their business. 
Jesus just paused the whole system. So they're asking, what right do you have to do this? In other words, explain yourself, Jesus. Prove to us your authority. On whose authority are you driving people out of the temple? So give us a sign that we might believe you. In other words, they're saying like, hey, if you give us a sign, then we will we'll say, okay, that's good. That's legit. And so give us something to, to believe that you are really, truly doing something that, with, with authority here. But what did Jesus say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And this answer that Jesus gives is confusing both to the Jews and even to his disciples. So they say, by whose authority are you doing this? And give us a sign. And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And that would be a pretty amazing sign, by the way. That would be a pretty amazing sign. If you are the Jews or even the disciples hearing the statement, you're probably not, you're just kind of puzzled. You're like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Like even now, 2,000 years later, with all the technology and mechanisms that we have, no matter how skilled of a, of a, a builder you are, three days to just is not possible to rebuild a huge temple. It's just not possible. But John explains what Jesus means in verse 22. Verse 22 says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So you see, it was after the resurrection that his disciples finally understood, right? So it was, it was like later on that they go, oh, he rose from the dead. Now I see what he was talking about. They understood what Jesus was doing and what he said later. They understood what he was talking about, that he was talking about himself as the temple that would be destroyed and then raised back to life in three days. But when he spoke these words, they had to wait to see them fulfilled. They had to wait to understand. But we know what happened on the cross. We don't have to wait for the resurrection. We get to look back and rest in the fact that Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected. And this temple, Jesus, the true temple, God dwelling with us, he came to be with us. Right? John already said this in John 1, 14, when it says the word, who's describing Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, uh, or pitched a tent among us, and we saw his glory. So Jesus, who is God, uh, become, became a human, and we saw his glory. The same glory that filled the temple in the Old Testament after it was originally built. So get this, this is the picture in Old Testament, 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11. After they finished building the temple, this is what happened. And when the priest came out of the Holy of Holies, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And the same glory came not just to the priest, but to be with us. And Jesus describes himself in Matthew chapter 12, says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. You see, Jesus is cleaning the temple, and he is the real temple. It is, it is in Jesus that heaven and earth collide. It's in Jesus that dwelling place. It is in Jesus the way it's provided for us to be with the Father or for us to communicate to the Father. Paul calls calls Jesus the mediator because of this reality. And 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
So you see, he is the one who has entered the Holy of Holies and offered a sacrifice for us so that we could be purified before God. And the sacrifice he brought was himself. It was himself. The sacrifice he brought was himself so that we can come into the presence of God without being priests or bringing sacrifices. Jesus is the mediator, the true priest, and the sacrificial lamb. Jesus, who stopped the the sacrificial system momentarily, eventually becomes the sacrificial lamb on our behalf. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 describes this very clearly. So I actually want you to go there. Uh, Go to Hebrews chapter 10, because you will see this unfold throughout this chapter. I'm going to read you several sections, and and I want to even encourage you to go back this week and reread Hebrews 10 all the way through to see this. Let it saturate and and, and pour into your heart. Because I won't read the whole chapter, but I want you to see some sections of it, but I want you to go home and read it later. So Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of a good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be, to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any con- uh, consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, right? So he's, he's putting this out, and so we need something better, right? If, if, that, if, if the blood of bulls and goats is not enough, we need something better. And verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ have offered, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Okay, so he's, he's explaining this for us. And then what does it mean then? Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy of holies, uh, or holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkling clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it's a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you see, he's explaining this for us. This is our hope. Jesus, who is the perfect lamb of God. Jesus, who died on the cross so that we could be washed clean from the stains of our sin. He is your enoughness. Jesus is your enoughness. There's not some action that you can do to bring you enoughness, but, but trust Jesus who is enough for you. Because remember that night on the cross, the veil that separated the seat of God, the holy of holies from the rest of the temple, tore from top to bottom. That means when Jesus died, he said there's no longer separation. 
He halted the sacrificial system that day in the temple, knowing that one day he will be the sacrifice that takes away all the sins of the world. And he went to the cross as the final sacrifice for all of us. And here's the reality. Here's the reality. If Jesus cared this much to clean clean this temple, he cares about you. He cared about cleaning the temple that, that, that you are as well. He cleaned the first temple with his life. And he will clean the temple of us with his life, death, and resurrection. He is the Lamb of God who died for you. So I asked these questions earlier, and I want to end on them again. I want to end on the same questions Again, as we go to the God who is our sacrificial lamb. In what areas of your life are you trying to be enough? Setting up a system of enoughness for yourself. And you need Jesus to come in and flip over the tables. Where are you neglecting God's holiness and straight up abusing his grace? Let's draw near to the throne with confidence because we have the great high priest, Jesus, the mediator for us. Let's go in prayer. Father, we come to you. You are holy. You are righteous. And we should not be able to communicate with you this way. And we couldn't for so long. But because of your son, because of your great plan for you to join this earth, you provided a way. It was a costly way. Your son had to die for us to take away our sins so we can talk to you, to be with you. And God, I pray right now, I pray for the areas of our lives that we're trying to set up as enough. God, I bring those things to you right now, to, to the throne of grace. Uh, Each one of us in this room has a different thing that we're running after. But I can confidently say that we're all running to wrong places a lot. And God, I, I pray that you transform that in us. Replace the, this enoughness that we're running towards with you. God, and I pray for the people right now who might be praying some of these prayers. Pray that they feel your presence in a lot of ways that you are forgiving them. They are, they are forgiven. So let's, let us rest in that. Thank you. Praise in your name, Jesus Christ. Beautiful name. Amen.